Alright man, and we're back. If you want to go ahead and skip to the main top 10, you can go ahead and look at the timestamps below. Uh, the show is on YouTube and Spotify, so if you want to skip the introduction and the rules, you can go ahead and do so. Alright man, this is my uh, top 10 favorite films of 1956. So what I do every couple of months is that I randomize the years 1930 to the previous year, so right now it would be 1930 to 2021. And uh, the year that's selected, I spend um, four months just watching as much as I can. And from there, counting down my uh, top ten favorite films. Now, uh, I go, obviously, for favorites. I don't go for um, any sort of objectivity. I don't really believe in that uh, sort of objectively believing a, one film is better than the other. So there are films that are more critically acclaimed or maybe more appreciated that won't be on my list, but, you know, I can uh, respect them and appreciate them in certain aspects. Um, but uh, the rules of the list, man. All right, so uh, when it comes to the years, I always go by the rule of the film has had to have been released publicly that year. So for 1956, it has to have been released to the public in 1956. Now, there was an exception. So, uh, for example, man, uh, Agnes Varda's Le Point Court was uh, is listed as 1955. And that's true, but it wasn't released to the public until the following year. So, therefore, it counts as 1956 to me. And as well, I'm going by feature films only, so I think the big omission here on the list would be The Red Balloon, which is about 40 minutes, I believe, and The Red Balloon is absolutely phenomenal, man. Would definitely have made the top 10, and would highly recommend, but I'm only going for feature films here. And when it comes to feature, I would say at least a minimum of an hour, hour 10 or so. I know some people kind of have different uh, definitions of what exactly qualifies. Some people say an hour 20, some people say an hour 10. I go for kind of, essentially, if it was intended to be a feature, over an hour is one thing. Um, and at the end of the list, what I do is I randomize the years again, and then in four months do it again for that certain year. Um, I've done two previous lists before. I did 1998 and 1958, and those weren't exactly four months. I was still kind of figuring it out, but this will definitely be four months. So the schedule for upcoming top tens will always be one in March, one in July, and one in November. So I believe that's all I had to say. And like I said before, I can't stress enough. These are these are just my favorites, man. I mean, there are films that may would would probably not be in people's list. I mean, if you listen to my top ten of '58, I, you know, The Blob was on that list, which I know probably a lot of people wouldn't consider. But I'm only going for favorites, man. So I've said before, when it comes to ratings and stuff, I don't really, you know, rating a film. I don't really think is the best kind of way to assess a film's quality because there are films that are probably are more well respected and are more loved that I would have lower. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm saying those films are lesser. I'm just saying that, personally speaking, I, I didn't get... I, I got a different response out of these other films. So, um, which I think is important to note, that if you end up, uh, when at the end, when I go through the list, films that are more loved, uh, that didn't make the list, or, you know, it's kind of so-so on, I definitely don't want that to be an indication of their lesser quality. I definitely don't want that, or, or to deter anyone from watching said films. I, you watch the films you want to watch, and get your own response out of it. This is just my opinion, and I hope that at least above all else, this turned, these, uh, lists are meant to, uh, turn people on to certain films that classics maybe they haven't seen yet, or, um, films that aren't as talked about that, uh, are gems. There's one gem on this list in particular that totally blew me away that I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about. Um, with that said, however, I think that's all I need to say, so let's get right into the list. 
Alright man, so at number 10 was a film that I actually swapped out at the last second. Really thinking about it, thinking about what I got out of this film overall was one that uh, it really stuck with me. A terrific war film directed by Robert Aldridge. This is Attack. If I ever lose another man on account of you, just one, you'll never see the States again. It's court-martial talk, soldier. I've got a witness standing right here. Let him hear me too, loud and clear, just so there won't be any misunderstanding. Double-cross me like you did Ingersoll, you You play the gutless wonder just once more, and I'll come back and I'll get you, Cooney. I'll shove this grenade down your throat and pull the pin. Now you got to listen to the cast on this thing. Just just listen to this man. You have Jack Palance, Lee Marvin, Eddie Albert, Robert Strauss, Richard Jekyll. I mean, come on, man. Directed by Robert Aldridge, man. That's just a hell of a uh, cast and crew right there, man. And this was one that when it started out, I uh, initially had uh, thought it was going to go one way because the opening of this film, man, you have this uh, brigade who are being gunned down or they're, they're trapped and they need basically backup out there. You have the lead of this crew played by Jack Palance and he's asking for help from the captain from Eddie Albert and Eddie Albert at the last second just totally screws him over and gets his men killed. So you can understand when Jack Palance gets out of this man, he is totally just infuriated with Eddie Albert. And that comes through with Jack Palance's performance, man. The whole first half of this film, or really, I would say, even less than the first half, the first act of this film, before the actual uh, proverbial shit hits the fan, you really see just this um, this tension between them, where Eddie Albert is such a, uh, such a coward, man, as somebody who is not truly experienced with uh, combat on the field, and as somebody who just kind of hides behind others, and is just completely unfit to be in this situation he realizes that um, realizes that Jack Palance really has it out for him. And Jack Palance's facial expressions in the first half or when before um, everything kind of happens is great, man. You can just see the rage in his face. And Jack Palance already is a uh, pretty uh, distinct-looking actor. Man, you see him in a film and you go, that's Jack Palance right there. But just his reactions when he has to be with Eddie Albert is fantastic. Without giving the entire plot away, essentially Jack Palance is led into another situation where he has to rely on Eddie Albert's help. And from there, some uh, real just turmoil and bad things happen, man. This is a film that is so heavy on the characters, man. It's so great because when I say it's a war film, it's not a grandiose war film. A lot of it takes place in these small kind of claustrophobic areas where they're trapped and they have to rely on these radio communications, man. Lee Marvin as well is in the film who comes in uh, comes in and out of the film, and he's really great as well, trying to see um, you know the side both sides of the situation on that and. He is just terrific in the film as well. This is a film that is definitely heightened by the by the performances of the characters, man, because especially as it goes on in the second half when it really starts to, when the tensions really start to boil and characters are really starting to uh, get closer to a breaking point, you just feel it, man. The third act of this film especially, where it goes to and the decisions that are made, especially the ending, really stuck with me. It's a film where the violence is really very matter-of-fact and is, can be very harsh without being exploitive and very uh, uh, grotesque because there's points 
moments towards the end when characters start to go and you really feel it man it's very like I said matter of fact and um, it's not it's not very glamorous man at least it's not in a way where the score pumps where a lot of where you know where a lot of times where like say you have a character who is killed and the the uh, the soundtrack of the film really kind of has to let you know what to feel about that it's a very smartly written film and with that said the film was actually written um, based off a story based off a play I apologize from Norman Brooks but the but the film was written by James Poe and James Poe man is somebody who actually uh, is is a quite a prolific screenwriter man he's done some films I've really enjoyed a lot like Last Train from Gun Hill which is a terrific western he did the Sidney Poitier film that got him his first Oscar Lilies of the Field he also wrote uh, They Shoot Horses Don't They which I haven't seen and even earlier in 1956 he wrote Around the World in 80 Days and um, another Robert Aldridge film from the previous year, The Big Knife. This is a guy who's really great with uh, with good dialogue, good characters, man. Oh, obviously as well, he's also written um, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof based on a play as well. Um, because even a film like Lilies of the Field Man, which I don't think is like an amazing film or anything like that, but he the way he writes those characters makes him so likable and enjoyable that it really kind of makes up for some of the shortcomings that it might have. Attack Man, it's a film that even if you're not a fan of war films, is one that I think anybody can appreciate if you like good dialogue and good characters. I love these kinds of films where when you get to the second half or you get to a certain point where the characters are just reliant on someone else, or maybe not even someone else, but are reliant on a certain uh, uh, situation from somebody else and the tensions that arise from that it just really gets you going man I love the I love films of situations like that where they're just completely trapped and you have to wonder yourself what would be done in that situation a terrific film overall and one that was a total surprise that I happened to record off TCM at the time of recording this the Kino Lorber sale is going on and this does currently have a blu-ray from them so it's probably about 10 bucks or so if you're willing to take a chance even if you're not a big fan of war films this is one that you definitely got to check out man if you're a fan of just great performances and great actors man attack at number nine the big epic of the year cecil b demille's the ten commandments a shepherd girl what can she be to you unless the desert sun has dulled your senses does she great garlic on her skin or is it soft as mine are her lips chafed and dry as the desert sand? Or are they moist and red like a pomegranate? Is it the fragrance of myrrh that scents her hair? Or is it the odor of sheep? There is a beauty beyond the senses, Nefertiri. Beauty like the quiet of green valleys and still waters. Beauty of the spirit that you cannot understand. Perhaps not. But beauty of the spirit will not free your people, Moses. You will come to me, or they will never leave Egypt. The fate of Israel is not in your hands, Nefertiri. Oh, isn't it? Who else can soften Pharaoh's heart? Or harden it? Yes. You may be the lovely dust through which God will work his purpose. 
Another film with a terrific cast, man. Come on, you got to hear this, man. You have Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, Ann Baxter, Edward G. Robinson, Vincent Price, uh, uh, let's see, John Derrick, man. Oh, man. It's just like phenomenal, man. This is a, a true epic, man. When people talk about epics, it's not just that a film is very long, which this film is quite lengthy. It's almost four hours, but man, it's worth it. This was my second time watching it. I, I had previously seen it uh, last year in the cinema, and what a terrific experience that was, man. This is a film that is meant to be seen theatrically. So it was interesting watching it, this at home. I wish I had picked up that 4K. Unfortunately, I had to settle just for a, a standard HD copy. But, man, what a terrific film. I don't know how much I can really get into the plot of this one. I think it's pretty much well-known based off the biblical story. Charlton Heston plays Moses, who uh, goes basically from a, uh, a king to a slave to leading the people out of uh, Egypt. And um, I'm sorry, I'm not a king, a prince, my, my apologies. Uh, he's raised in royalty, but he realizes that he's not, uh, his parents aren't who they say they are, or I'm sorry, his, his ma's who she says she, she is. And he has to kind of come to terms with that. And another film as well is that it's interesting how an epic like this really, uh, the, the um, character portrayal of Moses as kind of this indecisive character who uh, is being led by God and doesn't really know his true self because he, his whole life has been pretty much a lie at this point. So coming to coming to this point where he's going to follow, to he's going to, to listen to the word of God to basically to get these people out of Egypt under the oppressive um, ruling of Ramses, played by the great Yul Brenner, um, who uh, is terrific in the film as well, man. There's some great interactions as well with Heston and Brenner. And even when uh, when Brenner is um, off with Ann Baxter, who looks absolutely gorgeous in this film, man. She is beautiful, but terrific as well, man. Let's not say that it's just that she's a beautiful actress. She's also great in the film as well. And she goes through a great character change as well. Um... It's terrific, man. The scale of this film alone is incredible. There are some sequences, man, when you look across and see the amount of extras there. I mean, what was the what was the amount of extras they had in this film? Was like some crazy amount, thousands of thousands. So it's wild that you can have these uh, this grandiose kind of epic like this, but still have these small these smaller character moments. There's some times in the second half of uh, of some sequences with Ramses and Nef uh, Nefertiri. Uh, played by Brenner and Baxter, that are, are actually great, uh, that that don't slow down the rest of the film, uh, which is another thing to bring up, that the film is about three hours and 40 minutes, but it moves by at a pretty solid pace, man. I, I think I've mentioned before, it's pretty funny that a lot of these films that um, are longer, uh, uh, you can see that they that the, the, the script makes up for it, where they're not long for the sake of being long. Now, I know, obviously, in the 20s and 30s and such, oftentimes they would have... Or, probably actually later than that, 30s or 40s, um, they would have films that, you know, going to the cinema was a, was a, was a big experience, man, so they're going to keep you there for a while, the, you know, intermissions and all that, and, um, and but they, they utilize it well, it's not just to stretch the length of the film out, because how many films you see that are 70 minutes that feel much longer than they are, but this film, the pace of it is, is especially great. Um, the film is really divided into two halves, 
primarily where the intermission is at, not necessarily when Moses um, comes to terms with them having to get the slaves out. Um, it's more so about the journey in the second half after the intermission of going across, which is really where a lot of the bigger parts of the film come in. There's um, tons of just big sequences. There's the big parting of the seas. Um, you see all of the extras, all of the slaves just moving across. I mean, I can't even imagine what the coordination on that was. All the animals, all the kids and all that. It's totally wild, but it makes up for it because there are times in the film where uh, you could, I mean, the, the set design as well is really solid where even though it looks like a set, uh, you can just look at the furnishings in the background or especially the costume design is phenomenal, man. You look at what Yul Brenner and Anne, Bre Anne Baxter are wearing in certain sequences, you just see the little details, the, the amount of effort that went into this and, and it being not only just a great film is truly remarkable, man. Now, I've ever na I've never actually seen uh, uh, Cecil B. DeMille's, I keep wanting to say Cecil B. Demented from the John Waters film. I've never seen DeMille's uh, 20s version of The Ten Commandments. I, that's about two and a half hours as well. Uh, what I've, I've heard is very good, too. I'd be very interested to, to compare the film, not necessarily on the production, because obviously it's, you can't kind of, uh, it, it would be a, a horribly unfair comparison, but more so about how the story is portrayed there. But Heston is great in the film, man. Heston is an actor who I've always seen um, play play a lot of his roles theatrically. Um, and sometimes it's better than others in terms of his performance, but uh, here especially, it works very well. He's a very theatrical actor, and I think it's kind of made him one of the greats where he can play it up, but not ruin his performance, you know? Even talking about in 1958, The Big Country, he's playing it big in there as well, but he's very good suited to the material. I think Heston was just such a terrific actor, and that he was able to pull off these, a uh, great character actor as well, he's able to pull it off where you could see other actors get that same material and try to play it as he does and not come out as well. Also, I should say that I think Edward G. Robinson was in Soylent Green as well with with Heston, to my knowledge. I've only ever seen that film once, but I love Heston, man. He's one of my favorite actors. Such an interesting guy. Um, and the film is just, is just, if you can hold out and see it theatrically, I think you definitely should. However, I'm sure if you get the 4K of this, I'm sure that looks great as well, you know, but it's kind of hard to beat it theatrically. It's just one of those epics, man, that uh, you just have to see for yourself, man. I think, you know, 56 had a couple of big, big epics, but this is definitely my favorite overall, and it just holds up so much. With this film still being fresh in my memory, watching it again at home, it still holds up, and I just love this film, man. You gotta check this one out. I think there are so many interesting stories from the Bible that have made for varying quality films, but this is a this is definitely one of the best if you made a list of the best biblical films. This is just a terrific film, man, that you gotta check out. Just a great film overall. So that is Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments coming in at number nine. Number eight, this one was a big blind spot for me, and that's why I love doing these lists, because it gives me the opportunity to fill in the cracks I have of films that I had never seen before. A very well-known film, one that I'd never seen, but the classic Don Siegel science fiction horror film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He's been a father to me since I was a baby. Always when he talked to me, there was a special look in his eye. That look's gone. What about memories? There must be certain things that only you and he would know about. Oh, God. I've talked to him about them. He remembers them all down to the last small detail, just like Uncle Ira would. But, Miles, th there's no emotion. None. Just the pretense of it. The words, gesture, the tone of voice, everything else is the same, but not the feeling. Memories or not, he isn't my Uncle Ira. Wilma, I'm on your side. 
My business is people in trouble, and I'm going to find a way to help you. Now, no one could possibly impersonate your Uncle Ira without you or your Aunt Alita or even me seeing a million little differences. I want you to realize that. Think about it. And then you'll know that the trouble is inside you. Wilma, where are you? Out on the lawn. Say nothing to her. I had previously only seen the 70s version of this film with Donald Sutherland and uh, Brooke Adams, and that's a terrific film as well, you know. And uh, like when I was talking about with uh, The Blob in 1958 on that episode, I'm way more of a 50s guy than I am an 80s guy. Now, I know the Invasion of the Body Snatchers was the 70s, but my point is, is that I'm more into this kind of science fiction horror. While the quality does definitely uh, is a little more sporadic than a lot of 80s films, when it comes to sci-fi horror, the 50s is all about where I'm at and I can't believe it took me this long to see this film. And are you surprised? The film was incredible, man. This film was truly one of the strongest films, the science fiction films, horror films of the 50s, man. I don't think I really need to explain the plot, so I'm really not going to go into it too much. Basically, something's going on where these people are... They, they they look like themselves, they kind of act like themselves, but they're not quite themselves, man. And uh, we have Kevin McCarthy in the lead role. He starts to investigate what's going on. There's a case of these people, This uh, a great sequence early on where this young kid is saying that, I think it was his ma, she, it's not her, man, something is off. And this is a concept that I've always thought was just so fascinating and so scary, man. In terms of, uh, uh, in terms of if this would actually happen, it's like I don't even know how you would get through this because the um the actions of the uh of the people that have taken over i, I mean i'm not going to spoil anything like that but i think it's pretty well known but just in case you know i'm not going to say anything too revealing but you see like little ticks that are going on where something is quite off but it's not noticeable so how do you even really go about it you don't really know i think an updated version of this more so in the um uh and the more overt kind of deadly route would be probably George Romero's The Crazies in terms of that's a film where you have the people who um, get infected uh, and they're more murderous, but they're more uh, uh, smart about it. So it's definitely easier to point that out, um, which is funny because it feels like The Crazies is more of a proper follow-up to this film than that. I mean, The Crazies must-see film, one of Romero's best. But the 70s Body Snatchers as well uh, is considered one of the best remakes, and for good reason. Now, whether or not you prefer the 50s or 70s one is is uh, 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 neither here nor there. I think, for one, the 70s one is, a, is about two hours, I believe. This one is much shorter, at about an hour 20, and it really flows by at a great pace, because this is a film where I think, you know, it's a film that's been so steeped in pop culture that you already know what's going on. At least most of the audience members already know what's going on. You know essentially what this uh, sort of uh, uh, thing is. But it still works in terms of the progression of the story, man. Because we're following the plot through Kevin McCarthy's character. So even though as an audience we pretty much already know what's going on from just general kind of uh, discussions of the film it's still fascinating to see how he comes about it and the uh it's interesting that the flashback method that is used in the film where at the beginning of the film he's considered crazy and this and that and we see the build-up to that and i wonder if uh that's an intentional kind of uh, reference from john carpenter's in the mouth of madness the way that film plays out as well we have sam neil at the beginning of that 
that film who's uh, in an institution and, and they're saying he's crazy and then crazy and then we look back in the events of the film that could be just kind of a general uh, way to tell a plot but knowing Carpenter has got to be a, a big fan of this film so I wonder if that was intentional or not but as the film goes on that sense of paranoia works so well and we see the escalation of whatever this is start to spread and uh, we have our two leads Kevin McCarthy and Dana Winter who uh, are on the run and uh, the last act of this film especially I think is where it really shines um, and it's a film that the the plot could have been used in such a uninterest an uninteresting way I mean the thing with uh, a lot of 50 sci-fi films that I see is that uh, the ones that aren't so great usually are ones uh, that have a lot of potential, that have good plots, man, um, that could be remade. You know, you look at the films that should be remade, and it's those ones that have those great elements, but just don't add up. So even though it's funny how, you know, this is a, this is a great film that gets remade into another great film, uh, the, the, the plot is so strong here, and that, that the paranoia there is so terrific, man. Um, this is one that I probably don't need to convince a lot of people on, because probably of all the films on my list, this is probably the most most well-known, um, maybe this and another one, um, but it's just terrific, man. If you're like me and just have been putting this one off, I mean, it's a short film, man. It's only 80 minutes, and it's, I think it's available streaming as well, which is uh, how I... No, no, okay, I didn't watch the streaming, but I think it's on Hulu at the time of recording this, but do yourself a favor, check this one out, man. It's a, it's a terrific film that you're not going to regret. Just a great, smart science fiction film. Just loved it, man. Terrific stuff. At number seven, this is Kan Ishikawa's The Burmese Harp. Embarrassed to say that I'm not familiar with Kan Ishikawa's filmography. I see that he's done a lot of work, and unfortunately, I just haven't come across any of it yet, including a remake that he did of the, his own film in the 80s, uh, which I'm very interested in checking that film out and, and the comparisons on the storytelling as well. But this one was a total surprise that I had not been familiar with, and with, I thought it was just such a beautiful film. Uh, basically, what we have here is that it's in the middle of the war between the Japanese and the British, and um, it's, it's coming to an end, but it's still, it, it's not looking good for the Japanese. So um, throughout the film, after a conflict um, on a hill where um, the one of them needs to surrender, but they won't do it without getting too specific into it. I, I don't want to butcher the plot as is because it's really not about the plot so much. But basically we have the soldier uh, played by Soji uh, Yasui plays Mizushima. And um, he is caught in a situation where he sort of leaves and becomes a, a, a Buddhist, where he uh, he is brought in and taken by this other character, takes his uh, robe and starts to wander the countryside, seeing the bodies and the effects of the war. This is a very spiritualistic film, man, and truthfully, I don't know a whole lot about Buddhism culture. I'm not really sure about it, 
but it's not that it's really necessary because this is a film that's very um, it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for There, it's a film that's not about the plot more so about the character of Mizushima and the war he left behind him man because there comes a point where I mean the war is done at that point but he still wanders around he sort of left this life behind him and the people behind him and with the title of the Burmese harp we have these uh, I don't know if it's I forgot if it was one character or multiple characters that played this harp that it's not just used as a point of soundtrack but it's also used as certain signal calls and there's um, some great sequences in the film that utilizes this as a point where they're trapped in this house and they have to use the harp to signal it and it kind of adds to the overall uh, light effect of the film where a harp the, the like a harping general is a very um, uh, I don't even want to say relaxing but the certain sounds that emanate from it um, kind of go into the uh, a certain feeling a certain zen kind of feeling you know we watch uh, which the film is beautifully shot as well I'm not sure who the DP was on this film but there are just so many terrific sequences where he's a uh, He's in like this giant open area. There's like one sequence in particular where he's running across this this very um, wet beach, and it looks so great as well. What the film does is that it makes up for. I don't even want to say shortcomings in the war, in the war sequences as a negative. I say shortcomings in contrast of the rest of the film of the exteriors. I mean, this is a film that I read that was uh, that was. Um, I just had his name up right here, I apologize, that Ishikawa wanted to shoot in color, which I think would have worked as well, don't get me wrong, but I think the black and white of this film works so well because of its the singular image in the film of... of, of um, of Mizushima walking down this long road, this kind of barren road, with uh, just the stuff behind him is so powerful and 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 works to the cinematography of the film. It's a it's a visual film that is also heavy on this main character who doesn't have a lot of dialogue at a, uh, you know at a certain point. It really just kind of follow him around and see what he's doing. Not necessarily not necessarily that it's all about him. You know, we do cut back here and there to other members of the war, and uh, but more so in the second half when it's really more about him, about his journey, about this inner kind of reflection on his life in the war and, and how it could have been handled differently, the casualties of his fellow men who died at the hands of just in this unnecessary act. This was, this was a film that I... Um, I think back to a film like that I watched for uh, 1958, The Ballad of Narayama, which is a film as well that there are long there are long sequences without dialogue. We're really just getting to the headspace of this protagonist who is. Uh, really kind of has to be on his own journey and I find these kind of films more rewarding after multiple viewings or more rewarding in a spiritual sense man because this is a character who doesn't have to say what he's feeling which is a problem that I think a lot of screenwriters face. I just saw a recent film theatrically and I won't say the name of the film but a character is left on their own and a problem that I had is that that character is just multiple times saying what they're feeling, saying what they have to do and I'm just like man we got it, man. If we're, how often are you in a situation where you're talking to yourself like that? It just it just doesn't happen, man. Not too often, and that's why I think the script of this film, based on a, a, a novel, by the way, um, that I'm not familiar with, and the screenwriter Natawada, I'm also not familiar with. Truthfully, I'm not really familiar with a lot of the cast and the crew in this, but this has such a big impact and really had me think a lot about it after that. It's one that I would love to uh, delve more into the work of uh, the director uh, Kanishikawa. This is a film that I watched on the Criterion channel. I don't know if this has 
a physical release or not, but one that if you like films, very spiritual films about uh, just singular characters on their own journey, if you like films with beautiful landscapes where characters are just wandering across it to, to show off the, the beautiful exteriors, the damp, barren landscapes, this is one that I think is definitely recommended that won't be for everybody. Uh, and when I say it's a war film, I don't want you to get an idea of something. Like you know, like a film I talked about earlier, Attack, even if you don't like war films, they're not your thing, I think both of these films are so character-driven and are so heavy in that regard that it works as well, that it works so well. Uh, this is just a truly beautiful film that, um, like I was saying before with... Um, with uh, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, doing these kind of lists really makes me seek these films out that I, it makes me just, that I probably wouldn't have seen until later or not at all. I don't know if I ever would have come across this film or not, because I can't say here nor there, but um, I really just love this film and one that I think a certain kind of audience is really going to latch on to. This is just such a beautiful film and a high recommendation for sure. Coming in at number six is the second in the Apu trilogy, directed by the great Satyagi Ray. This is a Parajito. Parajito, a.k.a. The Unvanquished. Like I said, this is the second in the trilogy with Pathur Pankchali and Apur Sansar, uh, also known as The World of Apu. And I forgot what uh, Pathur Pankchali's alternate name is. Uh, doesn't matter. This is a film that's a little tricky to recommend if you haven't seen Pathur Pankchali, because even though it's true that Sataji Ray had no intention of making a sequel to that film only after the success that he did, I think emotionally this one will, be, will work a lot stronger, because we follow the main character, from the last film up who played by two different actors in this one and actually the actor in this who plays a young version uh, the actress Pinaki Sen Sengupta um, is not the same actor from Pathy Shali, but it doesn't really matter as much I think it, it still works on its own but um, I was lucky enough had I uh, mentioned it in one of my uh, Cozy Corner of Cinema episodes when I talked about uh, the world of Apu or Apu Sansar that um I was lucky to see this trilogy theatrically, uh, we, uh, you know, one week after another. So, walking into this film, I had such a strong uh, feeling towards Pathur Pankhali that I really didn't know what I was going to, uh, how I was going to respond to this, and. Um, Wow, man, I, I just got such a strong reaction to this film and really kind of showed me what a, truly what a master Satyaji Ray was, that Pathur Charlie wasn't a one-off. And actually, between you and me, man, don't tell anybody this, but uh, Apoor Sansar, the third film, is my favorite of the three. And um, I don't know if I like this more or less than Pathur Charlie, but, which is, you know, it shouldn't even be compared. So there's two different kinds of films, two different production styles overall, but it really just shows, this film especially shows Satyaji Ray's just um, incredible uh, uh, filmmaking techniques, man. We and I have to, I have to give a little bit of spoilers to Pathur Pankhali. So if you really don't want any spoilers, I'm not gonna get too in depth on that, but. Um, I do have to kind of talk a little bit about what happened at the end of that film. So if you haven't, if you want to just skip this overall, check these films out. All three are phenomenal. You will not regret watching them. And if you do, let me know so we can talk about it, man. And I was, I'm very interested to see uh, 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 kind of what kind of reactions some people would have to these films because I think people are going to have very different reactions, um, which is kind of what I had. Um, but with this film, Apu and his mother are going away because after his 
father's death, it's really just the two of them. Uh, you know, his sister as well passed away in the last film, so it's just the two of them. We see the mother's point of view a lot in this film. I mean, this is the Apu trilogy, but we have the mother played by Karuna Banerjee, who um, is very protective of Apu. She, uh, who is also the actress from uh, Pothropankshali as well, I should say. Um, but she is very protective of him. Apu is getting older, and we see him as a teenager, played by uh, Samarin Gosal. I also I apologize if I get these names wrong. You guys know me in foreign names. But we see um, he wants to kind of go out and start doing his own thing. He wants to... I, I don't remember if he was going to college or not, or if he, if he was on his way out at that point, but basically he's traveling and starting to see, you know, get more involved with his schooling and his writing and all that, and she doesn't really want to come to terms with that, so we follow as well. Uh, I also love the, the a lot of the settings in this film, that we see the different areas that Apu goes into. Um, there's uh, one great shot in particular that's always used for the posters where he's in the middle of this um, kind of... Um, in this neighborhood that he's just totally on his own for the first real time kind of uh, left on his own in this unfamiliar setting and it's great man I don't know who the DP was in this film probably should look these up before I started the, the video or the um, the discussions but just the way that Satyaji Ray uh, uh, films it it's definitely clear that he got more aware of his um, directing skills because there's a lot of shots in this film that are more specific whereas Pathopankshali has those elements as well where there are those specific shots that are definitely framed in a way that's great this film feels a lot more aware and especially to a poor Sansar it feels a lot more aware as well um, where the film really hits for me and why I uh, what I really got so strongly out of this film is not just the relationship to Apu and his mother um, Sabujaya, but in the second, in the in the third act of this film, where that goes to, uh, I can't even tell you what kind of reaction I got out of this film. This is a film that when I walked out of the cinema, I felt such a specific way that I cannot possibly get into without getting into spoilers. But um, it it was just so emotional for me, man, that I, I, when I say emotional, I'm not saying I walked out of the theater crying or anything like that, but there are certain shots that linger on him, and especially his mom, his apprehension towards her, and, um, and not for anything specifically, but I guess when I say that, more so that he wants to be independent, and she is kind of realizing that she lost her, you know, she, he's the only one left, we see her really trying to cling on to him and he doesn't realize that how many times you know when you when you're a teenager man you, you don't really take into a lot of these things what you're what the people around you do for you and the sacrifices that they make until much later than life i know i certainly have it took me a while to kind of realize what i was truly thankful for and where the film ends um i just couldn't get it out of my head man the this is a true masterwork uh of of craft and when the third act happens and we get to the conclusion um what all three of these films have in common is that they have a very powerful conclusion whether positive or negative you'll have to see for yourself but um just the way that this film ends really stuck with me and i had mentioned before that poor sansar where that film ends running up the trilogy did make me uh physically emotional it left me with, with tears in my eyes and and i was close to that with this one it was beautiful this is a beautiful work that i think truly will not be appreciated as well unless you see pather Charlie. and while you're at it go see a poor sansar as well at the time we're recording this criterion have the 50 percent off sale and truly there is no better time to experience this masterwork of film than now by buying that, that trilogy box set. Now, the 4K restorations, a 4K may come. I don't know if it will, but um, I will happily buy, the, buy that as well. I, I don't own the trilogy yet, so... Um 
I may end up buying just the box set now, but truly a, a, a trilogy of films that I uh, just, you know, it's just funny because uh, Satyaji Ray's work was one that I'd always known about, but I wasn't too familiar with. I, I saw the music uh, the music room for the 1958 episode, and while it didn't make my top ten, I thought it was a terrific film as well. He also did Devi and, um, what's that film, The Hero, I think he did? I haven't seen those films yet, uh, both, I think, released by Criterion, but... It was such a phenomenal film, man. One of just uh, one of the most emotional films I saw for this this list, man. I just it really just hit very close, man. This is I'm repeating myself, but I implore you, please check these films out. You will not regret them. Terrific masterclass of trilogy, man. Aparjito, definitely, definitely check this one out. Director Elia Kazan has a phenomenal amount of films under his belt. Classics like uh, Face in the Crowd, A Streetcar Named Desire, and On the Waterfront, Just to Start. But his 1956 film is at my number five spot, and that is Baby Doll. Would you move your leg? But it's cool here. Comfortable to sit in. What's this here? That's my charm bracelet. My daddy gave it to me. Them's the Ten Commandments. And these here? My birthdays. How many charming birthdays have you had? <laughs> as many as there are charms on a bracelet. Man, is that... Hell no. That's all. <laughs> I'll be 20 tomorrow. Tomorrow is election day and my birthday and the day that Mr. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected for his first term. It's a great day for the country for both reasons. Oh, he was a man to respect. Well, you're a lady to respect, isn't me? Me? <laughs> oh, I never got past the fourth grade. Why'd you quit? Well, I had a great deal of trouble with long division. Yeah? The teacher would send me up to the blackboard to work on a problem in long division. And I would go up to the blackboard and lean my head against it and just cry and cry and so this might be a wild card for some because I don't really hear this film talked about a whole lot. This is based on a, uh, I think by a play by Tennessee Williams. I know he wrote the screenplay, man. And this was one that, it just I just, the more I thought about it, man, this is a cool, cool movie. This started off as actually towards the bottom of my list. And the more I've thought about it, and the more I'm like, no, I'm actually, I really like this film, man. This is one where it's a great power play between three characters. You have Carl Malden, Carol Baker, and Eli Wallach. Great cast. This seems to be the uh, the theme of this list so far, these great casts. And this must have been a pretty racy film for the time, man, because we have this character played by Carol Baker, who's the character Baby Doll, who I think she's 19 in the film. Next, right, she's 19 turning 20. It's her last day of turning 19. And she is married to this much older man, Archie, played by Carl Malden, and they have a very bad relationship where Carl Malden is very cruel to her, very mean, but Baby Doll... Um, 
who is, even though she's 19, she is very childlike. I mean, she sleeps in a crib, uh, and there's a lot of, um, I'm sure, probably uh, Freudian aspects you can look at that. But Eli Wallach comes in the film in one of the best performances of his career, and uh, they start to form a relationship. He plays a character, Silva, and... I say relationship, but it's pretty much one way where Silva is pretty manipulative in, in, in an unconventional way to Baby Doll, where he's not outright saying that he's going to, you know, take over her and stuff, but there are some very uncomfortable sequences where, I mean, she is very young mentally, and not quite um, like, uh, like mentally challenged or anything like that, but the way that she goes about herself, she definitely is a very, um, uh, very uninformed kind of character. There's just uh, some great moments in the film where Silva is really uh, uh, going towards Baby Doll. He ha he's getting very close to her. There's a very strong sexual tension between him to her, and she and 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 with her character. You don't know if that sexual uh, intention is back or if she is just purely uncomfortable. He gets very close to her in certain moments, and you feel as an audience like you are stuck in this claustrophobic relationship. He's very touchy towards her, very dominating, and their power play back and forth is so strong. It's no surprise the dialogue in this film, man, is phenomenal. You have Tennessee Williams, one of just the great writers of the 20th century, writing this, and their back and forth is Terrific. This is one of Eli Wallach's best film of his career, man. When I know when you jump to one of his great performances as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but the more films I've seen of his, I really appreciate him more as an actor. Another film of his that I saw from the 70s called The People Next Door, which is admittedly not a great film, but his role in that film is great. He's a very uh, down-and-out father in that film who's seeing the effects of these drugs are having on his daughter. Um, but he is so menacing in the film, and the whole last last um, act of the film when it's the three of them, Carl Malden, Carol Baker, and Eli Wallach in their house. It the, the tension is so sharp, you could throw a stick of butter on it and it would cut in half, man. That whole sequence of the film really kind of solidified it for me. There's an underlying uncomfortable sexual tension in the film that is, there's so much to go back to, man, especially with the childlike mentality of Baby Doll to the older, um, more wise, but manipulative Silva. I wonder if, uh, I, I haven't read any interviews, but I have to wonder if William Friedkin is a fan of this film at all, because this film reminded me a lot of his 2011 terrific film, Killer Joe, with Matthew McConaughey, where the relationship between Matthew McConaughey and Juno Temple in that film is much in the same way, where Juno Temple as well, also these are both uh, Southern kind of films, you know, uh, uh, Southern, uh, uh, I don't even know uh, uh, exactly what part, but that relationship back and forth where um, Juno Temple's character in that film is very childlike. Um, I think she's younger in that film as well, maybe 16 or so, I, I don't exactly remember, but remember, but it's that same kind of thing, and, and how that forms as well, um, that's a different kind of film as well, there, there are, but also that film feels like a play as well, especially in the last act, where you have all the characters in this one location, but Killer Joe as well is a must-see film, that's a very, very strong film, um, this film I just got so much out of, and where the ending goes, it's, uh, man, the ending, it just nails it, man, this is, this is such a, uh, so ahead of its time with its, with the, the way the characters uh, uh, act off one another and the underlying idea of this young and old um, sexual uh, tension that is so um, 
I, I imagine was just so shocking at the time. And apparently this was the film debut of Eli Wallach, which I didn't know, and what a hell of a debut, man. Um, I don't think this is on Blu-ray. I had to rent this film online, but man, and especially with as hot as it is out, uh, I think this is a film that is perfect for this time of the year, a good summer film, and especially it's a film that takes place... I believe over the course of one day, if I remember correctly, because, yeah, I think they say that she was turning 20 the next day, where she's still of age, but there's still that underlying creepiness that works so well. Truly love this film. One of the real gems that I discovered this year, and a must-see, man. Love this film. That is Baby Doll, and it just goes to show how strong of a filmmaker Elia Kazan was. With even a great film like this that I don't hear talked about as much, is still one of his best, man. At number four, the seminal western of the year and probably of the decade, John Ford's The Searchers. What do you mean you don't have any blood, kin? But well, Debbie's your blood, kin. Not no more, she ain't. Well, you can keep your will. I don't want any of your property. Besides, I ain't forgetting you was getting all set to shoot her yourself. What kind of a man are you anyway? She's been living with a buck. She's not that Shut your dirty mouth! <laughs> I hope you die. That'll be the day. Another film like this that I'd always heard about, and this was my second time watching it, and the first time I had seen it, man. Um, like I talked about with Vertigo in the 1958 episode, I think there's an ultimate stigma when it comes to finally seeing a classic that you hadn't seen before. Not just a classic, but a film that's considered to be of a certain status that's untouchable. And when I first saw the film, man, it was... it was obviously great, I couldn't deny that, but it didn't quite hit the place that I think it had intended to for me, for whatever reason it was. So watching it again this time, having the previous knowledge now, it really made me look at this film in a much more appreciative light and seeing just how seminal this film was. Not just for John Wayne, of course, which would be his uh, most famous work, but of John Ford, a filmmaker whose work has kind of uh, led up to this point, and maybe even beyond so to later on with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but John Ford was such a seminal director with works of the sucks like Stagecoach, um, Young Mr. Lincoln, Rio Grande, a lot of the films where he's really perfecting his art. I mean, a director who is always kind of setting the bar for himself, and these films that are talked about even now. Uh, a Stagecoach was one that I hadn't seen until I think last year's years ago, and just seeing a lot of his uh, inventive camera techniques and his camera work showed uh, just what an exceptional filmmaker he was. And The Searchers is no exception. The camera work in this film was always something that stood out for me because not necessarily with the way of the movement, but of certain shots, the way that certain scenes are shot. Uh, a, a film like this where you have the hot deserts and then you have scenes that uh, are in the winter. And what's interesting as well is that it's noticeable when it becomes an exterior of these big open landscapes to an obvious set. But the way that John Ford shoots them is so interesting because he still treats it as such, if that makes sense. Like the way, uh, knowing certain uh, exteriors in the... Uh, um, Knowing certain exteriors in the foreground uh, uh, and the background and how he kind of 
sweeps the camera along, man, kind of on these beautiful tracking shots. It's a little, I, I may not be explaining myself in the best way, but uh, just his camera work here really stood out to me. John Wayne as well, man. I think this is a film that really kind of, uh, while John Wayne I don't think ever quite got to be such a complex uh, protagonist as maybe some of his uh, formers of the time, you know, I don't think he ever had a role quite as, with the exception of this, maybe as, as complex as maybe something of, of Clint Eastwood or, or or Gary Cooper of the Sucks, I think what I like about his character here so much is that he's a character who is filled with total hatred, man, but he still has that John Wayne persona on the front. He's somebody who really hates these Native Americans because of his past with them in a sequence of uh, uh, that has been discussed, but I think says a lot about his character where they, dis they discover a dead Indian and... Uh, he shoots the eyes out of both of them, basically. Uh, so after the after this character is dead, he if your eyes are shot out, you will no longer be taken to whatever afterlife there is there. You will forever wander in inevitability, or I'm sorry, not inevitability, in in uncertainty, never reaching peace. Where he's a character, even in death, he still wants them dead in a way that is so interesting to him as an actor, man, because he is, I think on the surface, it's easy to, to look at him as such a, a, um, a portrait of what a Western star should be. But I don't think that's the case, man. I think he's definitely a more layered character than just we're going to go on this journey, which the journey too, by the way, is so interesting as well. This is a journey that takes a, a long time where we see the characters gradually age and characters who come back later in the film, we see them older now. Uh, this is an early role for Natalie Wood who uh, comes into the film later on as an older version of a certain character. And we really feel that sense of journey man not just the the land but of time these characters who are taking this 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 big part of their lives i should also mention some of the other cast you have jeffrey hunter in the film uh vera miles ward bond another film with a great cast as well and we really start to see this journey they go on man we start to we we really feel the time pass and when you get to the ending of the film the pure exhaustion is inevitable and the final shot of this film is just one of the most perfect final shots of any film. This is truly a film that smarter men than I could talk about more in depth. And obviously I don't want to be sitting here all day talking about it. But just what the film gave me overall is something that I didn't fully appreciate until this viewing. And I think it's important to see these films again and really get a new perspective on it later in life. Because having seen it before and liking it a lot, you know, understanding its reputation and understanding understanding that it's often called the best or one of the best westerns of all time i get it but this time the writing is so strong as well this is based off a novel written by frank nugent who also wrote state uh maybe he didn't write stagecoach i don't think he did uh no he didn't okay i apologize but either way terrific terrific film I think this is one of the films on the list. I don't really need to convince you of its status, of its quality, because it, it does have this higher echelon of standards that a lot of filmmakers would, you know, play such uh, play such inspiration from. I mean, Martin Scorsese is a huge fan of this film. I mean, even, you know, you look at Tarantino, who duplicates a shot from Inglorious Bastards going out the doorway, which is just very noticeable, but intentional. It's just a masterclass, man. What can I say about this film it's sort of like what do i what do what, you know what can i really talk about here man it's a master class of john ford and john wayne at their heights and it's a film that 
Uh, you know, John Wayne's not my guy when it comes to Western stars, but this is one of his best films. And that's not to, that's not to discredit John Wayne. He, I mean, Rio Bravo is definitely a top three favorite Western. He's just an actor who uh, maybe I haven't been as much interested as his work in, in terms of some of his peers. But seeing this film, it really kind of just shows what a light he was, man. What a true film star he is. And John Ford, one of the true filmmakers of the 20th century. The Searcher's undeniable masterpiece. The biggest gem that I found this year, going through many films, um, films I'd never heard of, films that I maybe knew a little bit about but wasn't too familiar with, this was the one that I knew absolutely nothing about, never heard anyone spoke of it, and it came in at number three. This film blew me away. This is the Argentinian film Beyond Oblivion, a.k.a. Mas Ala del Ovidio. I probably butchered that name, but hey, man. This film, wow, man. This is an incredible, incredible film that was one of the first that I watched for the year and has still, you know, that whole time was near the top of the list, man. This is an incredible film that, for you know, it's... You can easily find it on YouTube. There are many uploads of this film, but unfortunately is not available on physical media. To my knowledge, there was a VH... Anyways, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But basically, this is an Argentinian film directed by Hugo del Carril, and it's about a man. He's in love with his wife, but she passes away, so he becomes a loner. He becomes totally isolated. But he goes to this club after her death, and he starts to see this other woman there that he starts to uh, kind of tip and starts to be very um, uh, formal with. And her husband uh, sees this man who is lonely and is giving her good money. And he says, why don't you go with him in a plan to exploit this poor man's death, uh, or poor man's uh, loss, I should say. Because they have an act going on where um, he like will throw knives at her, you know, like at a circus and stuff. And from there, we see the relationship between the two leads in this film. We have Laura Hidalgo playing Blanca and the main actor in the film who plays... Um, Oh gosh, what's his name? I just had here. Who plays Fernando, uh, uh, played by Hugo Del Calario. And he was an actor who has done a lot of work, but I'm not familiar with this. I'm truly, truthfully, I'm not too familiar with a lot of Argentinian cinema. Um, but this was one that the characters are so strongly written, and when it's a film that it's not a very long film, but the build of uh, build up of it works so much because the whole first half is really the build up between the lead here and his. Uh, or, I'm sorry, not between the lead uh, of the lead and his relationship to these two women, his wife who has passed away and this new woman who works in the club. Fernando's a very interesting character, and he's one who goes through long sequences without any dialogue. He wanders the streets in this nice attire where we see that he's obviously well off, but he has all this money, but nothing to do with, no one to truly love. That sense of loss is totally in him that he cannot see anyone else. He's become a drifter, a loner in his own life. So you can't blame him for when he starts to see this other woman who, in who inevitably I'm sorry, initially does not have really any interest in him. He he really he waits for her after the club and he wants to be friendly with her. Um, and she kind of just doesn't really think much of him. It's the husband who's conniving. But she's bad as well because they get to such a, a close point of romanticism 
it being totally one-sided. And that's what leads into the second half of the film, which is as strong, where I'm not going to give everything away, but they become very close. Well, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. He becomes very close to her, and it's still one-sided. We see the people around him start to see her for who she truly is and the manipulation that she is doing onto him, uh, the, the extraction of wealth that she's taking from him, being very disrespectful to the people around and the inevitable downfall and basically uh like baby doll as well it becomes kind of a three-way um uh, uh problem with these three uh the actor who plays the husband uh he is a name i just had up um whose name i uh can't remember right now i also i apologize it may not even be uh hugo del Carrio. it's it's kind of tricky to um to, to I may may have gotten the name wrong, so I so I do apologize. But um, either way, what, what I was saying before is that the interesting um, dynamics that come through with it is is great because um, uh, I think of the big comparison of the film would be Vertigo a couple years later, and um, whether it was intentional or not, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I won't I won't give away the connection there. But there was one big plot point that is directly it's the same exact thing from vertigo but it works so well because um both of these films are a character uh, uh, who's dealing with a certain obsession in a way and it's one-sided in vertigo it's a little more um uh what's what i'm looking for it's a little i don't even want to say sinister in a negative way because with uh with james stewart's character in that film it's it's more of a uh there's more going on in that character it's i'm not explaining myself all but um the relationship here is very interesting because uh the 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 lead in this film feels a little more human where we can side with him and we can see where he's coming from in terms of the betrayal of of both of their parts of the husband and wife and it's great man because when it comes to the conclusion of the film where everything is kind of brought to the surface it's great and it's tragic and ties it all together the writing in this film is so strong man this is written by um uh let's see get two here by uh jorge or yeah jorge ronbach and eduardo Barras. And I apologize if I got those names wrong as well, but um, the pacing of the film from their writing is so great because you really start to feel the buildup in the first half of that loneliness kind of creeping in and that release when he meets this other character, man. It works so well and it moves along at such a good pace that it just, I just found myself totally invested. This is like a this is a true gem, man. This should be on the in the Criterion Collection. This should have a physical release. This should have something, man. It's just wild when a film like this that is so good doesn't have a uh, as a traditional release because I don't I mean I don't know if a lot of people are apprehensive about watching stuff on YouTube or anything like that or, or watching stuff online but sometimes man you just gotta do what you gotta do and it's a shame and I really hope that someone can put this out I don't know you know maybe it's a right thing or maybe no one knows about it I don't know I looked it up and I think you can get a burn on demand like bootleg of it and. Uh, I just hope that uh, more people seek this one out, man. This film is too good to be forgotten and really deserves the credit that it properly uh, needs. So that is Beyond Oblivion. All right, man. At number two, we have Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped. C'est l'histoire de cet exploit unique que raconte le nouveau film de Robert Bresson. D'un côté, des murs, des barreaux, des soldats, des armes. De l'autre, un homme seul, désarmé, 
battue d'avance. Bresson's a filmmaker whose work I'm familiar with, but haven't seen a whole lot of his films, man. The only other film of his that I've seen is Mouchette, and that was one of the best films I'd seen last year, but he's done a... I know he's done a bunch of other films. Pickpocket, uh, Alhazard Balthazar, uh, Four Nights for Dreamer. He's done a lot of stuff, man, but this was one that... Uh, he's two for two for me right now, because I love Mouchette, and I love this film as well. Uh, prison escape films in general are totally my thing, which is funny, because I'm, uh, I'm not a big fan of prison films for whatever reason, but this was one that totally just captivated me, man. Captivated, not captivated. Apologies there. Um, this is based off a true story of this guy, Lieutenant Fontaine, who was put into a Nazi prison, and the whole film is uh, about his escape, the trials that he goes through realizing that he is going to be either in there forever or is going to be put to death, the escalation there and the time running out. Um, along the way, we meet a couple other characters. At a certain point, he gets another cellmate, and they have to devise a plan to get out of there. And this film is based on a true story, apparently so much so that uh, Bresson really did not want to stray at all from the facts. So we're being presented here with how it actually went about. Um, the memoir, memoir was written by Andre Davini, um, and there's a, this film is very light on dialogue in terms of the characters speaking to one another, but it's almost entirely narration, almost entirely my knowledge. Um, there's a lot of sequences in the film that the way Bresson directs it, the unfolding of certain events, it anyone else uh, could have directed it in a in a, uh, a monotone sort of redundant manner. But the way that he directs it here is so fascinating because he makes little events such as the way that... Also, the lead is played by Francois Latour. Uh, and the way that he does it is when he's just doing simple tasks like uh, unhinging the boards uh, and how he has to put them back together or getting rid of some of the uh, wood chips there, how he has to build the rope. It's sequences that on paper wouldn't, wouldn't be as interesting, but the way that Bresson directs it, with almost no soundtrack to my knowledge, I, I, at least I don't remember any soundtrack to this, it's all external uh, diegetic sounds, and you hear oftentimes gunfire in the background or, or other, event, or other uh, uh, sounds going on. The, the sound design especially is what really stands out, how uh, the film makes good use of silence, where silence can be broken by something as little as maybe footsteps in the distance or maybe something approaching. That sort of puts a whole new tension on the sequence. And the escalation as well when we get to the actual escape, which, you know, this was based off a memoir. So as an audience member, we know essentially what happened Happens, but we don't know what happens to these other characters. And also what Bresson does, which is so great for a film like this, is that even though we know the outcome, there is still that tension there. I don't know what happened to this guy afterwards, but at least in this situation, uh, when we get to the conclusion of the film, it feels still as such a... Um, as, as something uh, like a weight off your shoulder, where you knew it was going to, going to reach a certain conclusion, but the steps getting there make it all that worth it. And I really like with the end of the film as well, that it really doesn't linger on, it sort of just ends where it needs to. You know, I love a film like The Great Escape, but I always felt like, uh, an opinion that I've always had is that I always felt like you didn't, um, like a big portion of that film in the third act, it, you really could have been left out, because essentially the story is about the escape. That's what it is. But as it goes along, seeing the 
um, the the techniques that he has to do, uh, the the problems that he gets along the way, the issues that always come along the way. Because there's no such thing as a smooth escape. There's always going to be problems, man. There's always going to be that risk. And it's just so great to watch this unfold, man. Such an engaging film as well. I think this is a film that even without the narration, which is not a case where it ruins the experience, uh, where, as I mentioned earlier, where a character is by themselves, you know, it, 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 it works regardless. But... Um, in reference to like something I was talking about earlier, where the character talking to themselves is that he's it, for one he can't say it out loud, which you know thankfully he doesn't. It wouldn't even make sense for him to do. But a narration kind of works with filling that gaps if you really wanted to. Um, I'd be interested to see this without a narration, but it still doesn't negate from the film at all. Um, yeah, man, just terrific escape film. Uh, it takes its time, but it's never boring. And the conclusion, man, it just. It's just a masterwork, man. Brasson, really, the more work that I've seen of his, it makes me want to see more and more of his. And just the two films that I've seen, just this just very interesting filmmaker and, and what he's put out, man, I just really am on board with. He's definitely a filmmaker that I, I'm really interested to see more of his work. So, um, A Man Escaped. I believe this has a Criterion Blue. I don't actually know. I watch this on the Criterion channel. But one to definitely check out, man. Just a really terrific film. Number one, man. My number one favorite film of 1956. Wow, man. Truly wow. A film by a master, an undeniable masterpiece, and my first time watch, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. You mean there's going to be two other guys in on the deal, and we ain't going to know who they are? That's right. You don't know who they are, and they don't know who you are. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, I guess so, but... I... It makes sense to me, all right. How come we need them, though, Johnny? What are they going to do? Oh, one of them's for the job with a rifle. None of you boys can handle that, even if you were willing to. And the other one starts the fight in the bar. These other fellas, how much are they cutting in for? Not that I mind. Anything you do is okay, but... These men are not going to be in on the basic scheme. They're getting paid to perform certain definite duties at a certain definite time. And they're not cutting in on the take. They'll be paid a flat price to do a straight job. Well, if they don't know anything about the basic plan, about the job, then why are they doing it? Simple. These boys are straight hoods. They get paid in advance. Five grand for the one with the rifle and 2,500 for the other. Well, where's this money coming from? Uh, that's where Marvin comes in. He's getting the 7,500 for us, and he gets it back off the top. I wish I could do more, Johnny. It's almost not right for me to get as much as everybody else. After all, all I do is... Your money counts for plenty, Marv. You don't hear any of them complaining, do you? Sure. You're okay in our book, Marv. But look, Johnny, if these two hoods get paid in advance, how do you know they're going to do their jobs? I'll vouch for them. These guys are pros. They can't afford to weasel out on a deal. If they did, they'd be washed up. Okay? Okay. Any other questions? Now, Stanley Kubrick made previous films before this, man. He did Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. I have uh, Killer's Kiss is actually a film I like a lot. I haven't seen Fear and Desire, but I know Kubrick is very much not a fan of that film. So it's, I think it's fair to say that in terms of the Kubrick that we would know from here on out, The Killing feels like the real first Kubrick film. And my gosh, man, what a film to start out with. I don't, where do I even begin with this film? So The Killing is a heist film, one of my favorite kinds of films, man. We have Johnny Clay, played by the great Sterling Hayden, who has come up a number of times in the show, whether we're talking about The Godfather or Terror in a Texas Town or anything of the such. But he plays an ex-con who wants to steal $2 million from this racetrack. And along the way... We have these other characters that come into it, man. Um, we have uh, uh, some of the other characters like uh, like, like Elisha Cook Jr. Uh, and him and his, well, the relationship with his wife we'll get into later. But we have all these other characters who all either work at the racetrack or get involved in some way. And we see this heist plan and how it all 
unfolds in a bad way, man. It's a film where there's so many there's so many different characters to do this one task, but watching it all kind of fall together is, is fall together in a negative way is so interesting, man. Because it's a film where the heist is planned, man. It all works out if everything goes right, but really once the money is taken, that's where it all goes wrong, man. What I was saying before is that the relationship between um, Elisha Cook Jr.'s character George and his wife. Um, Sherry, played by uh, Marie Windsor, their relationship is so good. We start to see um, the trouble between them and how that ends up at the end of the film. And also the way the film is told is at times non-linear. And it's interesting to read that originally it was received negatively for that way. So in a re-edit that was told in a linear fashion, it was received even worse. So they ended up keeping Kubrick's original intention of the film. And it works out very well because at a certain point after everything is said and done, we realize what's going on. We still have that last act to deal with, the actual getting away with it all. And that is some of the strongest stuff in the film, man. The, the third act in this film, when we're up to date, the tension in that is so sharp, man, because we start to see the panic. The, everything is starting to close in. What's going to happen? And you just start to feel it more and more building up, the, the, the true anxiety of the whole situation. And then when we get to the final five minutes of the film, I mean, man, I tell you, there's one shot at the end of this film that says it all, man. I'm not even going to lie when I tell you that I actually... No, I actually noticeably gasped out loud because I was so surprised and shocked that it went this way where I was just like, man, the way that Cooper directs it, the way that he pulls back and we see the whole action, it makes the whole film worth it, man. I love these kinds of films when everything kind of just goes wrong because the thing is that it's not even that the robbery itself goes all that bad. It's just the outcome of that all. We start to see the characters turn on each other. We see the violence, which is another thing to mention as well. The violence in the film, this was definitely, I think, a turning point from the mid-50s where we're getting violent films that were not necessarily gory or grotesque, but were more uh, calculated and brutal. I look at another film like, um, oh gosh, what was the name of that film? I just uh, watched a little bit ago. It was um, The Last Wagon. That's what it was. Where the violence in that film is pretty brutal, man. It's, 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 there are a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, abrasive stabbings, and the character gets a tomahawk to the head at one point, and it's not gory, but it's shocking where you figured a film like that would be more pulled back. But Kubrick doesn't hold back, man. Um, it feels very honest. There's a, there's even there's a point later on where a character is killed pretty closely with a gun, and it's shocking as well. Um, the whole film it just it's a constant build, man. It's 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 only about an like 80 minutes or so, but Kubrick wastes no time. Uh, or maybe I'm sorry, an hour and 24. It just constantly is moving and has this energy and excitement that just works so well, and it just never stops, man. It builds and builds and builds, and then finally, when we reach a certain point, when the anvil is dropped off of our, our shoulders or dropped off our backs, you really just feel like, wow, man. When the credits come up on this, and you realize that everything you just saw was so perfectly constructed, you think truly a master made this film, and a master did, man undeniably the best film of the year in my opinion the killing just a total masterpiece and my favorite film of 1956 so that was my top 10 and like we always do we're going to go through all of the films i saw the rankings just from my least favorite to my favorite and then we'll do the randomizer so my least favorite film that i watched of the year is toto peppino and the hussy coming in at number 69 number 68 high society Number 67, The Lieutenant Wore Skirts. Number 66, Full of Life. 
Number 65, Yield to the Night. Number 64, Slightly Scarlet. Number 63, Goodbye My Lady. Number 62, The Solid Gold Cadillac. 61, Indestructible Man. 60, The Revolt of Mamie Stover. 59, Around the World in 80 Days. 58, The Bad Seed. 57, A Kiss Before Dying. 56, Bundle of Joy. 55, Back from Eternity. 54, Written on the Wind. 53, Bob the Gambler. 52, Plucking the Daisy. 51, The Catered Affair. And 50, The Intruder. 49, Elena and Her Men. 48, Nightfall. 47, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. 46, Serenade. 45, Moby Dick. 44, Death in the Garden. 43, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. 42, I Will Buy You. 41, Flowing. And 40, Friendly Persuasion. 39, Patterns. 38, The Mystery of Picasso. 37, The Violent Years. 36, The Killer is Loose. 35, And God Created Woman. 34, The Wrong Man. 33, Love Me Tender. 32, Stranger at My Door. 31, Bigger Than Life. And 30, Autumn Leaves. 29, The Last Wagon. 28, Crazed Fruit. 27, Jubal. 26, Gun the Man Down. 25, Farewell to Dream. 24, The Man Who Knew Too Much. 23, 23 Paces to Baker Street. 22, La Pointe Court. 21, Tea and Sympathy. And 20, Ransom. 19, While the City Sleeps. 18, Forbidden Planet. <laughs> Forbidden Planet. I don't know why I said that word. 17, Giant. 16, 1984. 15, Early Spring. 14, Spring on Zerinasha Street. 13, Street of Shame. 12, The Harder They Fall. And 11, Just Barely Missing Out and What I Changed at the Last Second. Somebody Up There Likes Me. Now for my top 10 once again. Number 10, Attack. Number 9, The Ten Commandments. Number 8, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Number 7, The Burmese Harp. Number 6, Aparagito. 5, Baby Doll. Number 4, The Searchers. Number 3, Beyond Oblivion. Number 2, A Man Escaped. And number 1, The Killing. So now it's that time again to randomize the years 1930 to 2021, excluding 1956, 1958, and 2021. So, drum roll please. Thank you, man. So the next top 10 year will be 2018, a very recent year, but man, there were some great films that year. So come back in November and we're going to do my top 10 favorite films of 2018. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. These are always so much fun to do and I hope that I turned you on to some great films that I think you're going to enjoy a lot. All the best. See you next time.